So I, have a, I want to start my message this morning with actually just a question for you all, and that is this. Have you ever driven a car that's been pretty significantly out of alignment? And then you had the moment where you're driving down the highway or just on the road, things are fine, and then you go to like change the radio and you take your hand off or comb your hair back with your hand, all of a sudden the car's like, like lurches over to that side. And you're like, whoa, you didn't realize how badly out of alignment it was. And you grab on and kind of like recenter, like, oh, maybe I should, well, yeah, that's fine. I just pull this way a little bit as I drive down the road. And you don't really think a ton of it because we're kind of, adaptable human creatures. And so we, um, you know, we're just like, I'll just pull this way a little bit and no, no big deal. It just seems workable. And then we take the car into the car shop for an oil change or whatever, and the mechanic does a look over on the car and they're like, whoa, like, your car is badly out of alignment. This is very dangerous. Like, like you need to get this fixed. So how many of you have had that experience? A number of you, something like that, some version. Okay, half of you, all right. So I have a non-car example I can use as well about uh, being out of alignment, but I think you get the gist of where I'm going here. Um, but the non-car example is really relevant too, and it has to do with uh, these moments in our lives where we're just badly out of alignment, where we profess certain values. Like these are my North Star values. Like I believe in being welcoming, I believe you know, in being inclusive and generous, whatever it is, things that just guide your life. That's over here on this one hand, and like I anchor my life around these values. And then you have on this other hand, the actual practices of your life, the habits of your life with all of our flaws and being human and good intentions sort of over here, and there's often this pretty significant gap. We profess these values that come from our family, from our faith community, from sacred scripture, whatever it is, and then there's our lived lives, and there's just this often, this significant gap between our values and our behaviors. The thing I want to say about that is that it's not unusual to be out of alignment. It's not unusual at all as human beings to be out of alignment. It is one of the reasons why we have faith communities, why we gather in a community like this, why we gather in circles to remind ourselves of the values we claim are at the center of our lives and then to help one another move into closer adjustment with those values. And it's often the spiritual mechanics among us that lovingly or not so lovingly call out the gap between what we say we really value and believe and then what we're, what we're doing. Um, and spiritual mechanics can do this in a number of different ways. They can do it very lovingly. Like they can say, hey, you know what? You said being generous really was a core value. And I see you again and again, like being kind of stingy. Like what's going on? Like tell me what's happening. I'm really curious. Or spiritual mechanics can kind of throw down and just call us out and it can feel awkward and uncomfortable and we can be resistant to it. So uh, let me share an example of a hardcore spiritual mechanic. This is, this is the prophet Amos in the, the Hebrew scriptures. So the Hebrew scriptures are essentially a story about a people that are trying to live in right relationship with God as they understand God and with a core set of values. And like all human beings and all human communities, they're often going astray. They, they have particular values they want to live by, but they're not always doing that. So in the, the Hebrew um, Bible, there's this prophet named Amos who felt compelled to call Israel, this community of people, back to their core values. And Amos was doing his prophetic 
preaching and ministry at a time in Israel's history when in the northern part of the kingdom, they were in sort of a boom. Things were going really well. Not for everyone, but for a certain elite, really wealthy merchant class, things were great and there was a ton of power and um, just control in this merchant class. That stood in contrast to the day laborers and the marginalized and the foreigners that were not treated very well. So the thing was, is even though these wealthy elite weren't doing a lot to create a more just community, they were still doing the right religious things of the day. They were giving grain offerings to God, they were giving burnt offerings to God, animals, etc. But Amos, the spiritual mechanic, speaking on behalf of God, says to this group of people, and this is recorded in the Hebrew scriptures, he says essentially, hey y'all, you're way out of alignment. In fact, I hate your religious festivals. I hate the pomp and circumstance of these religious festivals and your burnt offerings. They don't mean anything to me and they don't mean anything to God. What you need to do is pay a living wage, to treat others fairly, to welcome and care for those around you. What you need to do is let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So that's an example of a spiritual mechanic in a kind of confrontational way saying, you professed these values, but your actions are over here. And today, this afternoon, some of the spiritual mechanics of our time, including Reverend Jen Crow and others from this church, they will gather downtown to bear witness to this Super Bowl of excess in many ways to remind folks of the millions of dollars, taxpayer dollars, that funded the U.S. Bank Stadium. And the millions that have been poured into this 10-day long elite party surrounding the Super Bowl, a party which has essentially militarized our downtown, a party which benefits corporations much more than it benefits working class people of color in this community. It continues the pattern of over-policing, of wage theft, and of leaving this community under-resourced as millions of dollars fund. Actually, I saw this picture on Facebook of, I think it was the light rail, maybe going to the airport or something, and maybe some of you have seen this. Instead of Super Bowl 52, they had misplaced the B, so it was superb owl. <laughs> Which I think is kind of like a good knock on this. There's all this hype about Super Bowl this and all this thing. Well. This is a superb owl of excess. This is a big elite party. And so the spiritual mechanics of our time are gathering in this sub-zero weather to say, hey, Minnesota can do better. Minneapolis can do better. This is not, this is not workable when we claim values of caring for all and yet funnel millions into a big party for the elite. I have mixed feelings about the Super Bowl, I'll confess. I'm probably gonna watch it with some friends this afternoon, I think many of you are, so I'm not trying to claim high holy ground here, I'm just saying that's an example of where values and practices need to be called out. This sermon is also really grounded in the fact that this past year, and I don't know if how much this showed up in my preaching or not, but I can tell you I spent a lot of emotional and spiritual energy really worrying about things I had very little control over. I spend a lot of time worried about tweets. I think you know what I'm talking about. 
the news coming out of Washington, the steady stream of news coming out of Washington that, that distorted the truth, that was horrifying to read. And honestly, this last year, I sort of lived, I think many of us did, with this raw anxiety of watching our democracy and these social services sort of just crumble, watching the planet seem to just unravel around us. But I'm coming into 2018 with a renewed sense of clarity and focus and hope and a commitment to really live in alignment with my values for this long haul work that is needed. And in many ways, I have Adrienne Marie Brown to thank for this. Her book, Emergent Strategy, has honestly become my bedside Bible, my source of inspiration, my roadmap to deeper alignment and change creation. How many of you know, I'm guessing a bunch of you do, but probably not all of us, like I had to do a refresher, like what, do you know what a fractal is? Yeah, so some of you do. Some of you know what a fractal is, that's great. Um, let me tell you a little bit about fractals because I had to do a refresher on fractals. A fractal is a detailed pattern that looks the same across scale. So whether it's the swirl of your fingerprint, you know, on your index finger, or this, a swirl on a cowlick on someone's head, or the swirl of a seashell, or the swirl of the galaxies that you can see in those pictures from the Hubble telescope. It's this pattern that's similar across scale. It could be the veins in your body, so arteries and veins, that actually looks remarkably similar to a big body of water and then the little tributaries and the way that they move. Fractals, says Adrienne Marie Brown, are infinitely complex patterns that are self-similar across scale. They are created by repeating a simple process over and over in an ongoing feedback loop. In other words, says Brown, how we are at the small scale, so like a body, a human being, a human life, is how we are at the large scale. The patterns of the universe repeat at scale. There is a structural echo that suggests two things. One, that there are shapes and patterns fundamental to our universe. And two, that what we practice at a small scale can reverberate at the large scale. What we practice at the small scale can reverberate for the whole system. In other words, and this is one of the phrases from the book that I just keep saying to myself again and again, Transform yourself to transform the world. What is practiced at the small scale can impact what's practiced at the large scale. The invitation, as Adrian Marie Brown says, is to see our lives and work and relationships as a front line, a first place where we can practice justice, liberation, and alignment with each other and the planet. We practice this at the small scale, but it sets the pattern for the whole system. That's alive in me right now, that idea, that reality. And it's what I see happening in this faith community. It's what I see happening in our life together. We are moving beyond intentions and actually creating practices and patterns that align with our values of inclusion and welcome and justice. Let me just tell you the story of what I see happening here because I didn't see it. Initially, it's only in the last couple of months that this is really starting to come into view, and it's a slow and steady tortoise style story. <laughs> Nothing fancy, just sticking with it. 
practicing at the small scale a pattern that we want to see at the whole scale. So here's what I see, and this is far from a comprehensive list. So if you have, after you hear this sermon, if you have experiences or reflections you want to share with me in the receiving line, please do that. This is not a comprehensive list at all. But here's what I see. In 2012 and 2013, we began our racial justice journey, getting clear that our faith called us to dismantle both internally and then externally the horrors of racial oppression. We worked with a woman named Heather Hackman who helped us map out a strategy to fundamentally have a faith-based racial justice commitment that would live at the heart of this church, live in the center of this faith community. When we began this journey, Heather Hackman told us, she told me and other leaders in the church at the time, other people in that initial planning space, she said, if you really take this seriously and lean into this with courage and compassion and curiosity, she said, everything will change. Everything, she said, everything will change. I didn't really know what she meant, and I couldn't really imagine it, but I have some sense now of what she meant, and I want to tell you what I'm seeing. So from 2013 and 2016, that time period, we offered five 24-hour racial justice trainings led by Heather Hackman at staff and board members and elected church leaders and hundreds of other congregants participated in. These trainings helped us understand the history of race and racism and whiteness, and we got clear that racism was fundamentally incompatible with our faith, and that as an institution, we had many cultural habits and practices that kind of lived in white superiority. In 2014 and 2015, over 30 congregants went through an additional 24-hour training, learning how to be trainers, as we built the internal capacity to deepen and continue this work. So these are the folks that continue to lead circles and workshops and book studies. Like when you look in that program guide in the church, these are the people who are leading that content every year, moving it forward. Now here's where it gets interesting. In 2014, as a congregation, starting with some staff and then congregants talking, we decided to eliminate our Sunday school fees, making Sunday school accessible to all families and to all children. Up to that point, if you had kids in Sunday school, you had to pay an additional registration fee. And as we sat with that reality, we thought to ourselves, well, huh, we're not charging people like admission when they come into worship. None of you paid. We're not charging people to sing in the choir. We're not charging anybody to participate in a small group. Like, why would we ask our families to pay for religious education and not hold that as a whole community? So we made the choice to eliminate those Sunday school fees. And I don't think we would have done that without the racial justice work we were doing that focused on equity and deep inclusion. Eliminating those fees meant a loss of income, but it meant a greater alignment with our values. In 2014, people of color in the church began to meet as a circle, and they continue to meet, supported by the ministers of this church. There's a recognition that a dedicated space for people of color to meet and to talk and to reflect about their faith and what it means to be here as a person of color is absolutely critical for our racial justice journey. In 2016, we passed a budget that included a commitment to paying at least $15 an hour to all of our adult employees, so a, a living wage of $15 an hour. Again, I don't think this would have happened without our racial justice efforts and this expansive look at what makes for an inclusive 
equitable church, and it moved us closer in alignment with our values. In 2016, we started building relationships with members of the indigenous community. We started hosting community conversations here in this building about Madea Makaska, this body of water just a few blocks from us, uh, just until recently uh, named, legally named, Lake Calhoun. Now, the name officially has been restored, Bidet Makaska, White Earth Lake. So we were a part. We were a part. We played a small part in that much larger effort to restore the name of that lake. And it's more than just restoring the name, it's understanding and being in relationship with indigenous people, understanding the sovereignty issues they struggle with, understanding the environmental threat that their native land is under. There's much that's emerged from that. Also in 2016, we created a new vendor policy, clear that we express our values in the way we spend our resources. This policy intentionally helps us choose vendors based in large part on our racial justice commitments. Last year, grounded in our racial justice work, we voted to become a sanctuary congregation, recognizing that immigration justice is intimately connected with racial justice. This past year, the Board of Trustees appointed a racial justice change team, a team of board members and church members, I'm on this team, tasked with taking a 30,000-foot view of this institution, of the habits and the practices and the culture of this place, and then identifying places where we could make changes that would help us move toward a more inclusive and racially just institution. The first effort of this change team was to hold two listening sessions, two circles, made up of people of color and indigenous people from this church so that we hold at the center of our work the voices and experiences, the hopes and the dreams and the love of this place that that community of color has. And just this past week, as many of you read in the lead article in The Liberal, Jen Crow and I, We've been working on this for a year, but we're now sharing this with you. With the full support of the board, we are moving toward a co-ministry model where Jen and I will be co-senior ministers, co-executive ministers, having pay equity, working collaboratively and deeply together. And this reflects the reality of how we both carry the ministry of this place and our desire to be here for the long haul. And it's not disconnected from the racial justice journey we started on years ago. I'm excited about co-ministry with Jen, by the way. I am really, really excited. It's something, we've been working with a coach, and you'll hear more about this at the State of the Church meeting and subsequent Sundays, but we've been working with a coach outside of um, the church for about a year, and I remember a meeting maybe eight months ago where I just had this feeling of um, Oh, it was just joy about feeling that we would both meet each other and call out even more in one another when we were truly working as partners and being paid uh, equally. And so um, we're both thrilled, and you'll hear more about that in the coming, coming weeks. A fractal is a pattern that is similar across scale. How we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. And so what I see is this. Our racial justice ministry, slow and steady, is scaling up into every part of church life, slowly transforming us and slowly transforming our relationships with the community. What we practice at the small scale sets the pattern for the whole system. 
We're not perfect at this. In fact, I'd say we're pretty far from perfect at it, but the pattern that we're setting is the pattern of racial justice. That's the pattern we're establishing here. It lives in our circles. It lives in religious education. It lives in worship and our justice work. It lives in many of you. And you've shared these stories with me, how this pattern is alive in you and how in your corporate boardrooms or your schools or your classrooms or your communities, you are setting that pattern into motion. You are asking questions about, hey, are we using a racial justice lens in this conversation? Or why is that the habit or practice of this institution or school or workplace? That pattern is alive in you. The ministry and patterns of this church impact other Unitarian Universalist churches and faith communities. And so this pattern scales imperceptibly, slowly, steadily. Together, we are moving toward greater alignment with our values and toward the creation of the beloved community. I have a final story I wanna share with you. It's a story about a car, so we're gonna come back to the car, but the car was in great alignment, I think, at the time. Um, but it's, it's, in all seriousness, was, a number of years ago, I was involved in a fairly significant car accident. We were driving down, um, like a highway and there was a car in front of us that didn't know we were there and they were going slow, we were trying to pass them, they turned left and then we just ran right into the back of them. The car was totaled, we were, we were okay. Um, but part of my recovery was doing a ton of work with a massage therapist and with a chiropractor because I needed some body realignment work. The accident had injured and stressed and traumatized muscles and bones and tendons and ligaments and without doing that alignment work, that those uh, habits my body had picked up as a way of compensating for this accident would just carry on into the future with me. So I wanted to do that work so I didn't get set in this post-accident pattern of holding trauma or pain that should be released. And it was painful work. It was painful. Some of the massage was painful and some of the chiropractic work was painful. And I share that story with you because transformation and alignment work can be painful. A reminder that when something is stuck and needs to be adjusted or there's a habit that's just shaped our way of being and we want to change it, that can cause some discomfort and some pain. And it's short-term pain for a long-term gain. That's what I want to say again. It's short-term pain, and it's acute, and it's intense for a long-term gain. Here's what I know, having ministered with you for eight and a half years now. I know this about myself, I know this about many of you, is that none of us are in perfect alignment. None of us are in perfect alignment with our values and our habits, but the great news, the news of this congregation, the news of our faith, is that we're not called to be perfect people or perfectly aligned people. We're called to be faithful people, faithful to the demands of love and justice, faithful to the wisdom of the spiritual mechanics around us who call out these gaps in our lives. Our faith does not demand perfection, but rather that we practice moving into deeper alignment with our values because what we practice at the small scale sets the patterns for the whole system. Perhaps this seems impossible to you, but the proof you need is right next to you. It's in the pews, it's in our budget, it's in our programming in the life of this church. And of course, there's still a gap to close between our values and our practices, but slowly, steadily, it's closing. 
Friends, we are practicing what we want to become. We are practicing what we want to create. May it be so. Amen.